Again, this evening, we want to bless all of you that are present and greet you in Jesus' name and welcome you to this service. And we have a, a rather early morning appointment, and so uh, we might not just remain here in the auditorium too very long after the service is dismissed tonight. I want to bless all of you that have been encouraging to us in this week. Those of you who have sincere concerns for your families, those of you who love your congregation here at the Pike and other places where you are attending, the support that surrounding communities have given to this week of meetings here. We thank you for that. I don't know who all the people are, the visitors, and who all the ones are that are normally here. But we've learned to know some of you. Just we'll say a couple words here so that this meditation this evening might uh, be somewhat introduced to you. You might be aware of the fact that though I've known a brother Ellis Berry, Beery from past experiences, I learned to know him especially in his relationship with us in a ministry meeting we annually have in Mendon, Ohio. That is where Brother Ellis has learned to know Brother Paul Shirk, who was here with us this morning. And what I'm bringing tonight is uh, an early prototype, something I put together to help me prepare for this coming series of meetings in Menden, where I have a series of three messages about Jesus Christ. And so what I'm supposed to do in those messages they told me was present Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and pastor. Of course, since we're speaking to preachers in that assembly, we want the preachers to be like Jesus in his prophetic ministry, like Jesus is in his pastoral ministry and like Jesus is in his priestly ministry. And you might say, well, Brother Dale, I can't see any difference between those three. It's all the same thing. But we will look at one of those three aspects tonight and we'll change it a bit so it's a bit more applicable to this congregational setting at the end of a week of meetings. And so that is the, uh, I don't want to use you as, guinea pigs. We're not, it's not a practice session, but uh, it's an early attempt. It's an early prototype of what we would later then like to develop for these ministers later on this year. And another thing I want to say about this service tonight is this. These are some rather deep thoughts about Christ, and somebody thought in this assembly this week that maybe some of the messages have been a little bit too deep. I, I'm not trying to appeal to anyone's emotions when I'm preaching. I don't want to stir up a quickly, rapid, flaming fire that drives people to altars and drives people to make quick decisions for the Lord or makes people feel rapidly guilty of things they're doing wrong in their life and they feel a hurry to get it taken care of. But then, you know, the fire goes out and the wind blows away and the waves dive down and life goes back to normal and we, we haven't gained much. So that is not the way I preach. That is not the way, that's not what I'm trying to do this week. I want you to think about what you hear. And I want you to make clear decisions about what you hear. 
and though it is in order, it's proper to make public responses, maybe at the end of a service. It's more important to make that response and decision and commitment directly between you and God and with others that you need to relate to, something you need to clear up with somebody, a problem with your wife or your husband, difficulty with one of your children, a problem that you have with daddy or mother, go there and take care of that. Whether there's a public response here or not, we want this to be an enduring word of truth in your life. And particularly about this message this evening, and I'm sorry for all this introductory comment. This is particularly important because if there is a need in your life, or my life, and there's no one here that does not have needs, I'd like you to pay attention to what you hear. And if you are a young person, 11, 12, 13 years old, you might have to pay pretty close attention to follow through. Sometimes people tell me that if they, if they lose the train of thought for a minute or two, then they lost it, then they don't know where we are, and so they can't, they can't uh, be distracted, can't have their attention diverted for too very long or else they lose the thought there. And if you're younger like that, it's a little harder to pay continual attention because every adult that listens to, us, to, us, to a discourse loses their attention every seven minutes. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. A baby is crying, an airplane flies overhead, a big truck has his jake brake on going down past the meeting house. Somebody gets up and goes out to the restroom. The child beside you drops a book on the floor. All kinds of things happen and then your attention goes there, your attention goes there, attention goes there, and then you really gotta work and be disciplined to bring it back. And so what I'm sharing with you this evening I'd like it to be presented in such a clear way that you can remember it after the night is over. And if it's a month from now, if it's a sometime in the future when these thoughts lead you to knock on daddy and mama's door during the night and say, could I talk with you a while? I've been trying to sleep and it's not going very well. And I do need, would you please take some time for me? Or if you want to stop by and see one of your ministers or call them on the phone and say, could you stop by my house? Or whatever that will lead you to do in the future. I want this seed to be given to you in such a way that you have a handle you can put on it and carry it with you. And I guess it's my purpose tonight to present to you a picture, a story, an image of the person of Jesus Christ that if I was a sinner or needy person or someone trapped in some kind of addiction, struggling in my Christian life, I would want to know the Jesus that we're gonna to present to you tonight. I would want to know him. I would need to know him. I am thankful that I had the opportunity to come to know him. 
So I don't know what your needs are tonight. You are from Virginia, most of you, and Virginians are very polite. They're very graceful. They're very hospitable. They're very courteous. Most of you go out of your way to try to offend somebody. Most of you would do anything you could to avoid a conflict. You're not confrontational. And when you're in a setting like that, it's easy to learn how to mask your inner struggles. I'm not talking about a COVID-19 mask either. I'm talking about a mask that hides better than that does. I tell people I'll need to wear a mask, I've already got one. But we tend to hide who we truly are. But I want you to know tonight that with Jesus, you don't need to do that. There's several reasons why you don't need to do that. First of all, he already knows about it anyhow. So there's nothing hidden from him. But more important than that, he does not look down on you because it is this way. You don't need to try to impress Jesus with, a, with, some, with some, some kind of self-improvement. You don't need to paint the fence and wash the windows before Jesus stops by your life. He knows what's in there. It's perfectly fine to invite him in just like it is inside. And he will find a place to sit down, even if it's nothing but a five-gallon bucket in there, to sit on. You won't need to overcome any of his reluctance to come in and visit your home and your life. And plus that, there's no hope until we invite him in. There's no hope until we invite him to come and look. There's no hope. Everything stays the same as it was until Christ knows that he is welcome here. And I want him to welcome here, not only here with all of us, I want Christ to know that he is welcome here. And I need him as much as any of us do. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing how quickly the day has gone by. We would certainly have wanted you to be glorified this week. Among this assembly of beautiful people and worshipers of a high God, our own God. And Father, there's much that maybe should have been done that wasn't. But would you please, by that Holy Spirit of God, continue to work here. After the communion service is over, after the meetings are over, and when the service begins, when the meetings are over, they continue to work here in the lives of all of us. And I pray for someone tonight, I don't know who it might be in this audience, or someone listening somewhere else. There's a great need in their life and would really like for you to understand it, but they don't know how to go about it. I pray that you give someone courage tonight to take a step and say, come Lord Jesus, let me show you what I have in here. Step inside my door and just see what I'm like. Come here, dear God, and help me. Just like I am.
come and do something for me because I'm a very needy person and I don't know how to take care of it. But I have heard enough to know that I think Jesus can do it. Then, dear Father, minister to us in that way tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. From the time you open your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, where you have the story of the creation of the earth and then the formation of Adam, until the time of Mount Sinai, which is 2,500 years, there's only one priest mentioned in the Bible through that entire period of time. This strange personage of a sudden appeared to a man named Abraham was with him on a, for a very few moments, or a very short time, then disappeared off the scene of human history, never to be heard from again, in this same kind of way. This man was Melchizedek. Now who was this unusual man who the Bible calls the King of Salem? He was a priest of the Most High God. He was a king of righteousness, at the same time he was a king of peace. These are names the Bible gives him. If this was not the very logos of God in some kind of a pre-incarnate state or condition, at least it would seem like this Melchizedek must have been some kind of a prefiguration of the very logos of God, the very Lamb of God. But of all that he was, as he came to Abraham, the thing that the Bible seems to stress more than anything else, though it says he was a king three times, he was also a priest. It's his priestly work, his priestly ministry, that is recorded for us more in the Bible later on. That is what is in focus in the rest of Bible history. The priesthood of this man Melchizedek. What does a priest do? Do we have priests today in the Pilgrim Church? And you heard on Thursday night what we mean by that word. Are there priests today in our churches? And who would they be? And what do they do? So I'm going to read several texts to you from the Bible. We'll start in Genesis chapter 14. Reading three verses here. Verses 18, 19, and 20. This is kind of an interesting three verses because it's an interruption. There's a king of Sodom here that came out to meet Abraham. A war was just over. And Abraham did what the king of Sodom was unable to do. And so the king comes to meet him as he comes back after the slaughter of these kings that had tried to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the kings of the plains. And while they are visiting together, there seems to be this strange heavenly interruption as Melchizedek appears of a sudden in verse 18, disappears after verse 20, and then the conversation returns to normal between the king of Sodom and Abraham. So this unique set of three verses I'm reading is an, inter, is, a, is an intervention, it's, a, inter, it's an, an interruption 
It is something else that was happening here historically. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed the Most High God, which had delivered... And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. That is, as we heard here later in our Bibles, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. That's what it tells us here. Psalm 110 and verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thou art a priest in the same order that Melchizedek was a priest. We'll try to understand that a little better in a few moments. Hebrews chapter 2. I hope you don't mind turning to these references. This is verse 17 and 18. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings, feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for God in things pertaining to men, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant, and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, to also, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And as as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, we had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. My purpose tonight is to not take us back to the Old Testament, back to the Levitical priesthood. I'm not taking you back to Aaron. I'm not taking you back to the ceremonies and rites that are back there. I don't want to take you to the offerings and to the mitres that they're wearing on the top of their heads and the ephods that they wore. I'm not taking you back to those tunics and those mantles that they wore there outside the tabernacle, outside the temple. We're not taking you back there. But rather, I'd like to focus tonight on what the work is of a True priest of God. 
What does he do when he ministers to us? What can we expect of him? What does the priest do for us? And Christ being this high priest, my own high priest, what does he do for me? If I would be a sinner that does not know salvation, if I'm a Christian that's struggling in my life, if I'm a person that has problems bigger than I can handle, what can I expect a high priest like Jesus Christ to do for my life? Or in the case of those ministers that mended this fall, if they would truly choose to be priests unto their God in their congregations, what would they do? What would a priest at the pike look like? Or in Marseille, in Costa Rica. That's what I want to focus on this evening. And by proxy, I can speak to my people at home and give them a prophetic message. By proxy, I can try to understand their hearts. I can do what a limited person with such limited capacity can do. But the one my people need at home is Jesus. The high priest they need for their lives is the Lord Jesus Christ. I will do what I can do. It's very, very limited. In fact, you must understand that your ministers and your congregation, they need a high priest too. And that's certainly true of me. I think my people at home know that about their minister, their pastor. And so I want to focus on the ministry of a true priest of God. And that, of course, will be Jesus, first of all. It also should be ourselves. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. I'd like to look at that ministry a bit more in detail. Hebrews 3, 1. What does it say here? Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. I'd like to jump over to chapter 6 and begin at verse 17. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you don't understand those verses now, I hope you will understand them very shortly. Chapter 7, verse 17. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto them, The Lord swearing and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you notice that I'm quoting here from Psalm 110, verse 4, several times so far in this Hebrew letter. By so much was Jesus a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests 
because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but of his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of heifers, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself once without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, in chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now the remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And I don't know what your problem is tonight. What is the work of a priest? Jesus, my high priest. Jesus Christ, my high priest. What is the work of a priest? Now Jesus, as we said here a while ago, is both a prophet and a pastor and a priest. I think most of us are aware of what pastors do. and We are acquainted with preaching and the prophetic ministry, God's word before us being proclaimed to us regularly. We're acquainted with that. We know what prophets do. Jesus was not a priest like Aaron. Now in Costa Rica where we live, the Catholic Church has priests in every cathedral, in, in every diocese, in every, in every community. And the priests that they have there in the Catholic Church are very, very much like the priests in the Old Testament. They have vestments like the priests had back there, and they have their sacrifices that they do just like they had back then, different. They don't have blood running. They don't have 
bullocks and lambs up here. They have something else, but they do the sacrifice. So the priesthood like Aaron had it, like the Levites had it, is very similar to the way the Catholic priests operate in our communities at home. That's not what Jesus does. He goes way beyond what we find there. Jesus was not a priest after the order of Aaron. He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I want to show you how distinct that difference is if we reread chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there of another priest that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek? and not be called after the order of Aaron. So we see these two orders here. The one is very human. It lasts a certain amount of time. The priest dies. It must be turned over to somebody else. There's a lot of infirmity here. There's a lot of weakness and need here. Aaron himself was a very, very needy person and made a tremendous number of mistakes. He caused Moses a tremendous amount of trouble. These priests have to offer for their own sins. Before they can do anything for the, for the needs of the people. Can you imagine coming to see your minister at home here in this congregation? I don't know if anyone does this here. They do it where I live. I don't know if this ever happens here. But comes to the ministry of church and say, I'm a mess. This is what I've done. Look what I did to my child this week. I just did it on Tuesday. Well, they talk about the difficulties between the husband and the wife. And it's my fault that I did it. And suppose they walk up to Brother Jeff. Or Brother Luke. Or Brother Nelson. And Brother Nelson would say, excuse me, as he begins to close the door, and you're on the outside. And Brother Nelson begins to close that door of his house. He says, uh, I can't do anything for you. I, I've got three lambs to kill back here. If you know what I've done this past couple days, I've got to take care of this first before I can talk to you. And the door's shut because he's out here and has other things to take care of. That's the way it was. That's not the way it is with Jesus. And I don't think Brother Nelson would do that to you either. I was an illustration, brother. That was not that was not prophetic. That was an illustration. But there's a great difference between these two priesthoods. It is not easy to understand what a priest is just studying the Hebrew word of, for it. I'm not going to give you that word in Hebrew, but I will tell you what it means. Among other things, and it's hard to define, I'm going to try to define it for you in very simple terms that you can carry it along home with you, but it basically means to be holy. A sacerdote, a priest, well, let's just take the Spanish word sacerdote. That's a good word to use. We have, we have the word sacred in that word. We have the word holy in that word. We have... A, a reference there to something that's very pure, very right, very noble, very close to God, very much like God. To be holy. Be ye therefore holy as I am holy. Repeat at least four times in Leviticus. And that's the theme of the whole third book of Moses. That we be holy because he is holy. It's in there more than four times. But it means that. There's another idea in this word holy. This word priest. This word priesthood. And included in that word... Priesthood or priest is the idea of drawing near. It has the idea of being, of having access. 
It has the idea of being to being able to enter where other people cannot enter, to, to draw near where other people cannot draw near. And that's a very powerful thought when we think of priesthood. And we'll see it a little later. And it also has the idea of belonging. A priest is not his own. A priest belongs to somebody else. When a priest becomes a priest, his volition is over. His self-identity is finished. He belongs to someone else. Somebody else has true authority in his life. Now I'd like to show that to you. Well, even before I do that, I'll just tell you that a priest, more than anything else, in all of church history, Bible history, the priest, more than anything else, assumes more than anyone else in the world assumes responsibility for the sinners and for the sin. Now you stop there a minute with just what you've heard and think about Jesus for a little bit. We have those three thoughts that I just gave you in Numbers chapter 16. You might want to turn there if you... If you're tired of looking at your Bible, this time you can listen. I'll try to read it to you. But you'll get more out of it if you turn up to that Bible yourself and look at this verse in your own Bible. So that you see what side of the page it's written on and know approximately where you found it. So if you read this in your own personal Bible, you'll say, I remember that. On the, on the 3rd of April, we had that on a Sunday evening service. But it's verse 5 in the 16th chapter. And there are three characteristics, three identifying marks of a priest in this verse. And he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him, even him who hath chosen, even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Now we notice three things here. Notice this. Those who are his. Who are these people that are complaining and condemning Moses and Aaron? And these, this, this, this group of 250 that's decrying, denying, defying the authority of God and belittling the priesthood under Aaron, who of these are truly his? Who belong to God? You see that characteristic there in verse 5. Who are those who are holy? And who are those who can come near? He will cause them to come near. Who are they? And so if you keep on reading this story, you'll find that God made that very clear. Who that was that he had chosen. Who can come into the presence of the Holy One? Who can come into the presence of God? It is by this means, the priesthood. It is by this means, the priest of God. It is by this means. It means by this mediator between God and man that me and my condition can draw near also to God. I have a priest before me. I have a priest representing me. And maybe this is a time to call attention to a clear distinction. The prophet is very different from a priest. He does just the opposite thing that a priest does. These, these two people are as opposite as, you can, as they can be in this regard. Listen. Up here is God. That's not the way it is because God is here and God is here. But for, for this illustration, 
God is here. He's, he's distant. He's way up there. And, and needy men are here. Between the holy God and needy men, the will of God and needy men, between the will of the law of God, the word of God, and these people, stands the prophet. And the prophet hears from God. He's a spokesman for God, and when he receives of God, he gives to the people. So the, the whole thing is flowing, the air is flowing this way from God down to man. Through the prophet to, to the man. In one sense, in a very limited sense, that's what I'm doing for you tonight. You probably will feel different about that by the time this is finished. But right now, it sounds like to you that I'm doing that. I took, took some, some of God's words here from the Bible, and some of these definitions, and some of these concepts, and we get them from God, we're going like this, and down to, down to the, the men that are here. Those that listen. That's the work of a prophet. The priest is opposite. He starts down here. And here are men, here are needy people. He stands between there and there. He takes them this way. Opposite. The arrow goes north. The arrow goes up. The arrow goes to God. And no matter what is needed here, and what the mess is, what the problem is, and the sin of the life, the difficulty, and the impossibility, and the heavy weight, and the heavy decision, and the schedule, and we can't handle it, it's too much. Between me and a God that's looking for Dale to respond, and to respond right, and I'm limited, and weak, and not very capable, between here and there, I can draw near to a priest. And the priest can say to me, it's okay, Dale. You're having trouble. It's no problem for me. I have a right to go in. Come along. I'll take you with me. And there we go. And I need that. And so do you. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years. I don't care if you're a bishop in the church. You can't do without that. And neither can I. So I hope that puts it in perspective for us. That's what Melchizedek was all about. That's what Jesus does. His entire ministry reflects that. It's what a priest does. With all my fault, with all my weakness, with all my failure, I can't lift, lift up my eyes. I have to stand outside the temple. I can't even get close to the place. I must beat myself in the chest with my fist. And I must, I must find a priest to do something for me. And that publican stood outside there and did that in, in, in Luke chapter 18. Maybe he did not know Jesus. If he would have gone to him, Christ would have said, come, come with me. I'll take care of you. Can you imagine that publican with that confession? being carried in the presence of the Holy One. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine you and myself being carried there? Can you imagine you and I being taken there? But I don't know what the needs are you're struggling with. I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know what is too big for you in your life. I don't know. I don't know what you wish you could change. I don't know how ashamed you are of yourself. I don't know how needy you consider yourself to be. I know that I cannot live without this. He ever liveth to make intercession for me.
I think it might be good if we would note some of the requirements for a priest. I'm not going to stress this too hard tonight. We'll work on this more in Menden in the fall of the year when we're talking to those preachers up there. If the Lord tarries and we have that opportunity. But I thought I would give you a couple of illustrations that you could easily understand that would help you to figure this out. And again, though I want to reach your hearts tonight, I want you to understand it. That means you must use your mind. You must think. You must receive these words. You must, you must come to an understanding of them. You must say to yourself when this is over, yes, I think I understand it. What I'm going to do is take some examples from your Bible of needy situations that someone ministered to, that someone did something about, before there was a Moses, before there was an Aaron, before there was the Levitical priesthood, before there were the, the, the washings and the anointings of oil upon the head, before there were the anointed of God, before there was a priesthood of the Aaronic order. I will take you back before that and show you some very, very beautiful Bible examples of what a priest does. I find myself in each one of these stories. I guess I'll do this. I can hardly believe what that clock says back there. I think I'll do this without looking at the references. Maybe we will look at one. So three visitors show up at Abraham's tent one day. He quickly prepares a meal for them and they sit down and they eat it. They get up to leave and the one says to the other two, you know what we've got coming up here. There's a Sodom that's going to be destroyed. But we just sat at his tent door and I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. I wonder if we shouldn't inform Abram about it. The three of them seemed to have had a little counsel there with each other, and they were in agreement. Two of them went on to Sodom. One stayed back with Abraham. Abraham, uh, there's going to be a problem over Sodom. It's going to be destroyed. But, but God, Lot lives over there. Lot and his wife and his daughters and some sons-in-law. God, God, uh, and he begins that powerful intercession. Ever liveth to make intercession. He begins that powerful intercession for his nephew. God, not for 50. You can answer that passage and it passes over very quickly, but, but he moves down from 50 down to 10, and God says, if there are 10 righteous there, I will not destroy it. We have this Abraham standing between a needy situation about to be wiped out, and, and we have a holy God, and between there is a priest of God. Between you and a holy God stands that priest. 
And God did not, did not tell Abraham what he would do. Which is one of the laws that's in the Bible. If you know God, you've learned this already. That God is never obligated to tell us what he's going to do. And he did not tell Abraham what he was going to do. He heard Abraham. And the only thing you and I need to know is that God heard us. The only thing you and I need to know is that someone paid attention to it. It was not lost on dead ears. It, it was understood. And when we know that God heard it, then we don't need to worry about what God's going to do. Because God doesn't tell us what he's going to do. He shows us who he is. The most important thing about God is who he is. I am that I am. But the next morning, when Abraham looked at, down into the plain, he saw that smoke rising. If you study your Bible closely, you'll see these few words in there. And God remembered Abraham and heard what he had prayed. And God delivered Lot from that overthrow and used those two angels to do it. It's a powerful story of the work of a priest. And that could be developed, <laughs> there could be an entire sermon preached on that story, but, but I can't do that. If you'd like to see another picture using Abraham for a priest, just look at what we had already this week as a father and a son walked up Mount Moriah together and listened to the son talking to the father. You want to hear the work of a priest? You want to see what a priest does for you? You want to see what Jesus Christ will do for you tonight? Listen to those two as they walk up the hill together. You get to the top of the mountain. And God answered from heaven. And God showed him back here was a ram caught in a thicket. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and return again. And they returned again. Beautiful story. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Here's a man that has a wife. She's been married for quite a long time. She's sterile. She has no children. We've already heard this week that it was a shame for a Hebrew mother to have no children. I can read it to you in Genesis chapter 25. I'm not going to take time to do that tonight, but Isaac interceded for his wife. As a priest of God, he took his needy wife and her condition, her shame, and her feeling of uselessness and took her to God. And God heard what Isaac did, what Isaac said. And he opened her womb. There were twins there. In that womb. You see, a faithful priest does not only know what my need is, a faithful priest is not only able to understand me and figure me out. A faithful priest is not only capable of seeing my error, my failure, my mistake, my sin, my sorrow, my shame. A faithful priest of God does not only know what I'm like. He knows what to do about it. He has excess of all the answers that I need for my life. He has direct access there and he's allowed to draw near and he is Welcome to come in. And so the priest not only understands my needs, but he has a relationship with God that enables him to do something about it. 
I think of another Old Testament example. I hope this is not boring to you. I think of Joseph and no one ever suffered up to that time in Bible history, in the Bible story like Joseph had suffered. No one understood as well as he did. No one was able to take those who were out of the way and those who were opposing themselves and those who were in great need. No one was able to present them to God like Joseph could do. No one was able to forgive like he was able to forgive and deal with a sinner like Joseph was able to deal with a sinner. No one was able to come into the presence of, a, of the Supreme One, the King, the Pharaoh, no one had the right and the access to all that Egypt had and all that that kingdom and glory represented as Joseph had. No one had the authority that Joseph had. He had the ring, he had the cup. He had all the storehouse of the whole country. He was next to Pharaoh. He had right to Pharaoh's house anytime. He didn't even have to dial Pharaoh's number. He had direct access to the king of Egypt. You say, but Brother Dale, Joseph was angry. You say, Joseph mistreated his brothers. You say, he shouldn't have handled them like that. Are you sure? Turn to Genesis 42. I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. And this follows a passage of scripture that looks like Joseph handled these boys with a pretty severe test. But look at verses 23 and 24, my dear people, tonight. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And he turned himself about from them and wept. And returned to them again and communed with them, and took from them Simeon, and bound him before their eyes, and kept him, but sent everything back to his father that they needed. Joseph was going to help these boys. They were in very, very good hands. Everything they needed, they would get. They will like nothing. I could read on to the end of this whole thing. It, it would take too long. But when it was all over, the story was over, and Jacob was now buried back in that cave of Machpelah where his grandfather had bought that land. And now they're on the way back to Egypt, and his ten boys are scared. They come to Joseph and they beg him. They come to Joseph and say, we're sorry. They come to Joseph and say, your daddy told us that we should ask you to forgive us because we did that. But they were dealing with a priest, a holy and harmless priest. They were taken care of. Joseph took care of them. Just like Jesus takes care of us. I have one more and, and, and I'll, I'll try to get over this quickly. I'm going to turn in my Bible here to Job chapter 42. We find in the very first chapter in the book of Job, there are 42 chapters. In the very first one, we find he was a priest, this time representing his children, and all those children died. Offering sacrifices for his children, because he wasn't sure how it went with them, but they were all gone. And now in chapter 42, I'd like you to read verses 7 through 9. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, 
The Lord said unto Eliphaz, the Temite, My wrath is kindled against thee, for against thy, and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, and that ye have not spoken. In that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Mammothite, went and did according as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord accepted Job, a priest. He belonged to God. He was God's. He was holy, just. God told Satan that. And he had a right to access. He had a right to draw near. Job, you ought to do it for them. And God looks at his son, Lord Jesus, tonight and says, I know Dale's got a real problem down there. But you, you bring him here. If you get a hold of it, take a look at him, look what's going on, you take care of it, you bring him up here. You've got to do it, Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm glad to do it, Father. Whatever it costs, I'll do it. Whatever it takes in his life, it's available. I'll, I'll do it. And Jesus does not only know what's wrong with me, he knows what to do about it. That's the beautiful thing. So we see these examples of the holy characteristics of a priest. One who understands the people. That means he understands me. We notice several words. I've read them to you, and I'm not going to take time to. But the word is merciful. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He's one that can offer me help, the assistance that I need. He can do it. The Bible says he's patient with me, patient with you, patient with me. And not only that, but what I'm going through, he understands it. And, and more than that, what I'm going through, he's experiencing it too. And not only that, what, what's hurting me is hurting him. And when I'm suffering, he can feel. We have a word in Spanish and we don't have it in English. I can't translate it for you very well. Compadece. It's such a beautiful word. It's referred here in the book of Hebrews to the work of a priest. What it means is suffering alongside of, suffering along with. Compadece. And it's hard for me. And Jesus knows that. And he feels it too. It's hard for me to explain that to you how that works. I just know that it's true. We saw that in some of those examples there. And not only for the lost, not only for those who never tried to come, never, never thought about being a Christian, but also for those who made attempts at it, struggled and failed in the process, and find themselves as a, one of the one of the. 100 that sat on the mountainside alone and the 99 are safe in a good place but you're not and you find yourself drifting away and falling away and the the, 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 the priest knows where you are now I'm going to ask you something if you were struggling tonight you were in sin you're scared to die. You'll be afraid to leave these wicked meetings. You're, you're concerned about what your future is going to be. 
How about if I'd recommend tonight to you see Aaron about your problem and see if he can fix you up? How about if I'd send you to Eli? He was a high priest. Would you like him to minister to your needs tonight? How about if we try Mr. Caiaphas? At least that gets us in the New Testament. Would he be able to minister to your heart? Understand your problems? Would he be merciful and kind to you? Does he have access to the throne? Would he take you up to God? And on that journey from here to there, would the same transformation take place in your life if Aaron was doing it or Eli as if somebody else would be doing it? And how about in your congregation? Where would you go? And who would you choose? If you had to pour this whole thing out, it was so ugly and shameful, where would you go to tell that story? I, I, I wouldn't want any of those three to take my case to God. I, I'm afraid I'd be as a bad shape and it's as over as I was when it started. I don't think I'm going to go there. You see, a, a priest is like a lawyer. A priest is like an abogado. A priest is like an intercessor. A priest is a parocletos. And I don't know if you know it or not, but even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Book, it was God's will that all of us in the Christian church be a kingdom of priests to bring people to God. Needy people to God. The church should have out there in front of that door a great big sign with red and white letters that says these words. Out there, outside, there's double doors. There should be a big sign out there that says, don't ever forget, emergency room. The ambulances of time should be stopping out there, and the litters should be coming in here, and the stretchers. There should be the more holy place in all the world to bring the needs of men, the problems of life, into the foyer of that church. There should be seasons of prayer. There should be understanding. There should be a hand placed upon the shoulder. There should be tears running down the cheeks. There should be a ministry here. For the needs of men in this church and in the little church that I know about in the foothills of the mountain range in Marseille, in Costa Rica. We're all called to be a kingdom of priests. It's a strange thing, isn't it? That the same needy person that can't make it in life without someone else's help would have an opportunity to offer a little grace, a word of prayer, an intercession. Offer a word of encouragement. Offer an identification. Put your hands upon some needy one and say, we'll get through this together. It's an amazing thing that God arranges that for his church. And then I wanted by saying that Jesus Christ is that Melchizedek that is able to take me to God. He doesn't have to make sacrifices for his own sin like other, other priests have had to do. He understands my struggle, my weakness, my failure, my sin. And although he is completely 
pure and without any mark of blemish whatsoever. And though he is ever so holy, he looks at me with the struggles I have. And I don't need to be afraid of him. I don't need to be afraid of him to come to look and come and touch and come and know and come and understand. I don't need to be afraid of him because though he is ever so holy, there's not one trace of a holier-than-thou attitude in my Savior. And though he has much to offer me, there's never a word of ridicule. He never compares himself with me and never gives me the idea that if only you would have achieved what I've achieved, if only you would have maintained yourself like I did, and if only you would have been as victorious and successful as I have been. No one has ever heard anything like that from Jesus. There's only one thing there, a desire to help. Give it to me, I'll take care of it for you, I'll help you. Let's go, we'll do it together. That's the only thing I've ever found in Christ. He was tempted, like I every day also am tempted. But he was always a victor in all his temptations, and I am not always a victor. He never made mistakes in those difficult tests of life, and sometimes I don't do very well. But he chooses to identify himself with me, just like he did with that leper when he put his very hands on the hands of a leper, something that a Jew is never allowed to do, but Jesus did it. And he is willing to put his hands on me tonight. I thought maybe I should review with you just very, very briefly how this Lamb of God, how this priest of God, how this one has suffered terribly and yet offers us all the joy and blessing we need how this one who shed his blood, how this one who went to Calvary saves to the uttermost those who come unto God by him. I thought I should share with you a little bit what his attitude is towards a sinner. This gives me hope because I find myself here. The book of Luke is the unique gospel in your New Testament that talks about Jesus dealing with sinners. The word sinner is used in that gospel more than any other book in the New Testament. You find him dealing with sinners there like no place else. Listen to these beautiful words in Luke 7, 34. A friend of publicans and sinners. In chapter 15, where we have three unique stories about Jesus' relationship to sinners, it says, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. In chapter 19, verse 7, we find the people mocking Christ and saying, this man hath gone to dwell with one who is a sinner. It's easy to understand for me why publics and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him, because they were not afraid of him. And though they were very, very wrong in much that they did, they could trust Jesus with their greatest needs. So can you tonight, and so can I. He will take care of it. He knows what to do about it. He's not going to leave us where we are with it. He's going to fix it. It's not hard for you to understand why in chapter 7, a sinful woman from off the street came into a Pharisee's house where Jesus was invited to a meal. 
I don't know what Brother Lewis nicely would have thought this evening as he was sitting at the opposite end of the table from where I was with his wife there. If some kind of a motorcycle Harley Davidson would have come into that nice driveway, shut that chopper down outside the living room door, without an invitation would have come up the steps and into that living room and across the dining room and would have fallen down at someone's feet and would have begun to cry. I don't know how it would feel if someone would take that kind of liberty and express their needs like that to us in such a graphic way. Maybe the reason why we don't hear more confessions of sin and great need in our churches is because it would be too shameful to do it. And there can be nothing wrong with you. There dare be nothing wrong with you. You're a member of our congregation. There dare be nothing wrong with you. You teach a Sunday school class. You were a permitting leader in that room. There dare be nothing wrong with you. You're a deacon in this congregation. You're a preacher's wife. We, we won't hear very many people getting right with God in an atmosphere like that. The needs to walk in the door will turn around and walk back out. And we may never even know that they exist. Oh God, we... We need a priest in our churches. We need a priest to take us to God. We need someone who's not afraid of us, not ashamed of us, not pointing his finger at us, not wagging his tongue about us. We need someone who understands and has all that we need to make a difference in our lives. We need him tonight. We can't end these meetings without him. We must come to know him and draw near to him. This is the priest that we need. This is the high priest that he has come to be for us and that we should be for each other. If only we would humble ourselves. If only we'd be smaller. If only we'd be willing to lose our image and our importance. If only we'd be safe to bring it down to the light so we can have fellowship with one another. And so the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, can cleanse us from all sin. So I can need to understand why that lady, that sinful lady, went into that house. I have no trouble understanding why she did that. Why can I not, why cannot I have compassion and offer a new opportunity, a second chance perhaps, as Jesus did to the needy people that are around me. Why must they measure up? Why must they give me that false impression that all is well? 
If there be some unconverted person, some needy Christian, some weak and stumbling one, that would truly want help tonight, would that person feel free to draw near to me? And if he can't draw near to me, then where will he go? What is my attitude? Towards a someone who's struggling with purity in their life, someone who's struggling with pornography in their lives. Am I able to understand it? Can I share the feeling? Can I share the loss? Can I share the terrible struggle and the shameful feeling that a person like that has in the dirty mind and the, the frustrated and the desperate feeling that they sense when they know that there's no hope for their problem and there's no place to go. How about someone in the congregation that's a failure economically when so many others are doing so well and so much on top of it? Do I have the grace to take somebody who is financially in a serious condition and encourage them and say, it'll be all right, brother. We'll fix this. We'll take care of this together. Let's work at it. We will try. A young person in the congregation comes home on a Sunday night and it was his girlfriend told him right before he left the house that he should never come back, that the courtship is over. And Monday morning comes, that young man cannot face the day, does not know who to talk to, does not know how to get through the very first hours of getting out of bed. Is there a priest somewhere? Does someone care? Does, would somebody notice the struggle that he's going through? Is somebody there? Is there someone that could pick him up and take him on a journey into the holy place? So that is the message in brief. I'm sorry that I didn't explain it any better, but I end with two illustrations. The first one is one you know very, very well. And we're talking about the high priest of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're talking about a traveler on the road to Jericho. And we're talking about some thieves that came and robbed him and wounded him and left him nearly dead beside the road. And as he's lying there, possibly unconscious, at least perfectly unable to do anything about his own problem, maybe not even aware of how serious his condition is, a Levite of the ironic variety, the order of Aaron, walks by and looks down there and hurriedly hastens on. A Levite comes, he's part of the same order, part of the same tribe. He gets a little closer, notices the extent of this damage, and then does a deliberate thing, walks to the far side of the street and moves on, and he stays there in the ditch. And then my high priest comes along. 
And he looks down there and he sees the condition immediately. And he does something about it. It's no wonder in my mind that when the Pharisees made fun of Jesus and mocked him and ridiculed him and showed him the lack of credentials and how he could not possibly be the son of God that he claimed to be, they told him, you are a Samaritan. They had no idea how true their words were. The priest picks me up and takes me to the very throne of God and there I find grace to help in time of need and there's great mercy and there's hope for Dale because Jesus took me into the inn and cared for me there and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again I will repay thee it's a simple story it's true it didn't happen to me it happened to D.L. Moody he was preaching in a large city they built these large tabernacles because they didn't have buildings big enough to hold all the people that would come to those meetings. Some of these tab tabernacles were almost round. Some of them were rectangular. They had doors along the outside. And so it was that in this great big building on this particular afternoon, there was an usher stationed at each door. So we have an usher here. We have an usher there in that hallway. We have an usher coming up the steps. We have an usher out here at the double doors. And a rugged little boy from the city had heard about D.L. Moody and thought he would like to hear him preach. And so with his ragged clothes and the mucus running down the front of his nose, he got to the door and the usher looked at him and said, not in here, Sonny, and put him out the door. But the little fellow was not about to give up and so he tried the basement door. Came through the basement, come up through it to the top of the steps and was an usher up there and said, not in here, son. And the dear little fellow had to get back down the steps. After trying that a time or two, he got very discouraged and began to cry and crossed the street. He started walking down the street in the opposite direction, walking down the sidewalk the opposite direction. And he banged right into a great big man. Why are you crying, Sonny? Well, there's a tabernacle over there, and Mr. Moody is going to preach over there, and they won't let me in. I can't get in. I can't hear him preach because they won't let me in. Sonny, come over here. Then hold his coat and hold on a little tight. And follow me. A great big man walked down the street. When he got close to the tabernacle, he crossed that street, walked up to, up to the very door where that little fella had tried to get in before. When he got to the door, the usher stood back. And he saw the little fella hanging onto the coat. The little boy was inside his building. He was all excited. Maybe he can have a chance to hear Mr. Moody preach. But Moody did not sit down in the audience. He came up here and sat down up here, the little boy beside him. He was holy enough to get in. Mr. Moody belonged there. He had a right to enter. He could bring anybody along with him that wanted to come along. The tonight is you, and the tonight is me.
and we're going to hold on and we're going to go in because it's our opportunity. Let the ushers scorn. Let the rest of the people laugh. Let the rest of them say, I didn't know he had that problem. Let the rest of them find fault with it. Let the rest of them say what the Pharisees said when the lady was there crying at his feet. Let the rest of them talk, but we found our way in. And we belong here, and it's safe to be here. And there's no better place to be. Come home, son. Jesus will bring you right to the throne of grace, and you will obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. And so, Father, if there's anyone here tonight that, or anyone hearing these words that is a need in their heart, struggling with something in their life, help them understand tonight that it's safe to take hold of the coat of our Lord Jesus and follow you, follow you right into the presence of the Holy One, where there's mercy and understanding. We already understand what's wrong. You've already suffered because of it. The blood has already flowed. The sacrifice has already been given. It doesn't need to be done again. But we follow him into the holy throne room of God. And no one finds fault with us and no one makes fun of us and no one shames us. But we hear the message and we believe the words that we hear. And we know we're accepted and beloved and become part of the family of God. And though we're not worthy, there's one that's worthy. And the door is open, and he's invited in, and we come along. We're part of something that's greater than anything we've ever experienced. But there's hope for us, like we have never had. And our lives will be different from now on. Because someone understands me, and accepted me with all the problems I had. And took me to the end, and brought me into the very presence of the Holy One. And there's safety here and I'm at home. Oh God, speak to us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing just two stanzas of a hymn. And the brother's gonna give up this hymn. And while we sing it, if you feel a need to get a hold of that coat, you can come into the throne of God and find rest and help for your soul and your struggle. You may recognize that tonight as we sing, and what shall that be, brother? He said 629, excuse me, 629, let's sing it, you, you may stand while we sing, or raise your hand, or make it clear, or if you want to come forward, you may do that, but just make it clear that tonight I'm coming to the door, but I can't come by myself, and someone must take me in, and someone is waiting at the door to bring you in, 629.
Would you come as we sing the sixth verse? We're going to sing that last verse, the sixth verse. Come while we sing. Sing it, brother. Tremendous joy to be with you this week in this beautiful sanctuary and our unique special times of worship together. May God bless you here as a church. Pray for your ministers. Encourage them in their work. Be faithful to your commitments to the congregation. Be glad that you have a clear identification here in your congregation that can represent you and your testimony to other churches and people in this valley. You don't need to be like every other church that's around here because you're part of this one. You want to be faithful. You want to be... You're committed here and you want to maintain your commitments. You do that with great joy. It brings a lot of power to church to have members like that. I want to encourage you that way. I need to turn this over to somebody else, but I do want to bless you for your faithful attendance, for your reverent spirit tonight. And I want you to remember that Jesus Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you don't have an understanding that you need to respond to him tonight, as long as you're alive tomorrow, that same one is waiting to bring you into the very throne of God. You think about that, meditate on it, don't forget what you've heard. Now God bless you.